Hi, I'm Tom Harper. And I'm Diana Thomas. And welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. The river lay heavily upon the desert, bright as a spill of molten metal from a furnace. The sky smoked with heat haze, and the sun beat down upon it all with the strokes of a coppersmith's hammer. In the mirage, the gaunt hills flanking the Nile seemed to tremble to the blows. Our boat sped close in beside the papyrus beds, near enough for the creaking of the water buckets of the Shadouf on their long, counterbalanced arms to carry from the fields across the water. The sound harmonised with the singing of the girl in the bows. Those are the opening words of one of Wilbur Smith's best-loved and best-selling novels, River God, uh, published in 1993 and the subject of our episode today. Indeed, and River God, for those who don't know it, is an amazing, epic, huge-scale romance set against a very turbulent period in Egyptian history, whose three main characters are Lostris, who's the girl who's singing one heard in that excellent reading, um, who is the daughter of an Egyptian nobleman um, called Intef, her lover, Tanis, who is a young soldier, who is the son of Intef's apparent great friend, but actual, actually in Intef's eyes, rival and enemy, Lord Harab, and Taita, who is probably, or arguably, Wilbur Smith's most interesting, original, and perhaps best-loved character, a eunuch slave, who is also, as we will discover over this and subsequent books, a very, very unusual and gifted individual. So, over to you, Tom, to tell us about the story of River God. Yeah, so the story opens, I was going to say when Egypt's at the peak of its power, but that's not true because Egypt historically has been the upper kingdom and the lower kingdom. Uh, and in it, its pomp, in periods of ancient Egypt's pomp, uh, these are united under one pharaoh and then things fall apart a bit and they divide again uh, into these two kingdoms. And so when we open the story. We're in one of these periods where the kingdoms are divided. So the pharaoh um, that is the, is the pharaoh of, of this kingdom we're in is only the pharaoh of Upper Egypt. Um, so right from the off, there's a sense of the a, a civilization of incredible grandeur and wealth and power and prestige, but also slightly rotten that actually uh, there's a decadence that's set in. Um, and, and this is dramatized very effectively, as we'll talk about. And into this world, as you say, we get this triangle of Tanis, the hero, Lostris. Um, she's not a princess because she's not from the royal family, but she's effectively a princess. Um, uh, and Taita, the slave. And the first part of the story is very much this sort of forbidden romance between Lostris and Tanis. Uh, and in which uh, Thanos is kind of exposed, he's banished, he rehabilitates his reputation. Um, 
he is at every stage coming up against Lord Intef. Um, and this is again a classic Wilbur move in that you think you know what this book is going to be about. You think it's going to be about the two lovers coming together and defeating the baddie. And then about halfway through the book, Wilbur throws in this curveball, which is the historically accurate Hyksos in Hyksos invasion. And suddenly it goes off in directions that you never expected as the characters are forced to flee up the Nile into the kind of uncharted hinterlands of Africa, uh, where they have many adventures. Uh, but I won't want to spoil it for the reader. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, um, most people I think new to the book um, would would not know who the Hyksos are. We're going to talk about them in greater length later. But just quickly give us an upsum of these people. Well, yeah, so they are they come from the the east as so many kind of barbarian tribes do uh, and they sweep into egypt and they have three um sort of uh, killer apps as you might call it uh first of all they have horses uh which egyptians have never seen before secondly they have wheels which astonishingly the egyptians have apparently never seen before uh, even though they've already managed to build pyramids and temples and agriculture and this whole civilization. Uh, and third of all, they have the uh, the recurved bow, which is a much more powerful and accurate weapon than anything the Egyptians have. And they put all these together uh, into chariots, um, so wheel, wheel-based vehicles drawn by the horses with the archers in them. Uh, and as a result, they absolutely tear through the, the might of the Egyptian army, which Wilbur dramatizes brilliantly in a sort of massive central battle scene yeah and it's kind of interesting that even kind of what three thousand years ago more than three thousand years ago almost four thousand years ago um military technology hardware was was still absolutely key and could utterly transform people's fortunes a bit like i know having the first machine gun or the first breech loading rifle or something up against people who've just got bows and arrows yeah and i think definitely in this book, you definitely get a sense when he describes that battle uh, where, the, where the Egyptians first meet the Hyksos, that it's almost like an Omdurman or something where these um, this much more technologically less advanced civilization coming up against the brutal killing machine of modern warfare and just not yeah. standing a chance. Yes, they just they have no idea. These, these, and it's brilliantly described because, the, because come across... Riding across the very dry desert lands, which are sort of flank the Nile, that the the, the Hyksos arrive in a cloud of dust, which they sort of seem like a kind of sandstorm on the horizon, and yeah. it gets closer and closer and closer. And it's a bit that's almost like a kind of zombie movie, because because you know that the Egyptians know there's something in the cloud, but they don't know what it is. You, they've been told because already. Where armies have fallen, cities have formed the Hyksos, that it's absolutely terrible, and, and that these then people cannot be stopped and they have monsters. And suddenly, out of the sand emerge chariots. It's, it's an amazing description. And it's kind of a, one of the things about the book, just to just to kind of rewind a second, is it's extru- it's really peak Wilbur, yeah. in the sense that it's it's it's, it's brilliantly and richly told. Um, and yet that has this incredibly strong narrative framework. And so if you go back to the beginning, the where you were the scenes you were reading, 
actually take place on this hippo hunt. And so the Tanis is, is displaying his manhood and virility and strength and warrior spirit by slaying huge hippos, much to Lostris's excitement and Titus' concern for both their safety. And, and in the course of this hippo hunt, which is itself extremely dramatic, um, you learn about the three characters, that Lostris is extremely beautiful and willful, bright, kind of just becoming a woman in a kind of Juliet sort of way, um, but as a classic kind of romantic heroine, yeah. that that Tannis, as I say, is this strapping warrior and, and physically very handsome and, and blonde. That's a rather extraordinary thing about Tannis. He's, he's golden-haired. And Taita is, is this extremely clever, rather vain, self-regarding, occasionally cowardly, but fundamentally brave underneath person. And, and, the, and this information is not conveyed by sort of endless, boring exposition, but it comes through the dialogue and the action. The hippos, having been slaughtered, are dragged to shore where the, where the finest cuts of their meat, which is greatly prized, are taken off for the sort of upper classes and the pharaoh and whatever. Whereas, and the population then leap on the, on the hippos, a bit like people uh, on beached whales, you know, in sort of Iceland or Japan or somewhere, where, where like the whales are the sort of source of food or had been, used to be. And then right at the end of that thing, you get the twist, which, as you say, is that Intef, who, who, who is Lostris's father, who, whom Tanis thinks of as a good man who loved his father, is actually this evil and as we will discover, treacherous, conniving, manipulative, and 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 is also twist Taita's slave master. Yeah. And so Taita has this this is faced right from the beginning with what the problem. What is he going to do with these two people whom he loves very much, whom he has sworn to help be together, knowing that that his master will be viciously opposed whatever he does. Yes, it's a brilliant, brilliant dilemma, isn't it? Where he's sworn to Lostris and he can't deny her anything. Um, he's a great friend of Tannus uh, and can't, and sees him almost like as a father. So Titus sees himself as a father to Tannus almost. Uh, but at the same time, he he is beholden to Lord Intef, um, who absolutely will not see those, those two people together. So it's this incredibly strong driving motor of the story because you feel so much for Taita. Uh, and certainly in that first quarter of the book, it's, you know, all Taita's well-intentioned efforts to, to do right by Lostris and Tanis, and they just go wronger and wronger and wronger, which is, yes. um, as a reader, you, you're just kind of watching it all collapse under him, thinking, how the hell is he going to get out of this? Yes. And the other thing you learn, you, the two other things you learn about him, which I think are really fascinating, the first is that that Tanis has this amazing bow, which at this point they think is the top bow because they've not yet met the Hispos bow. Yeah. But it's a regular kind of what most people would think of as a bow, like one curve. Yeah. And and it's it's USP is that Taita has made it of composite materials of various forms of bone and wood and horn and all sorts of things, which give it unusual strength. 
that only Tannis is strong enough to bend the bow. This is very the kind of Agincourt and Cressius, like the English archers having these bows which most people couldn't even pull the string back. And that's why he's able to shoot the hippos because his bows are so powerful. Yeah. So Taita, so, so and you learn very quickly, that Taita basically regards himself as responsible for almost every great invention that Egyptian society has. And, and he's quite vain about this, but at the same time, he's a eunuch. And and he still has male heterosexual emotions, yeah. except that he has no way of enacting them sexually. So so at the same time as he loves in those different ways both Lostris and Tanis and really wants to help them, he's also it's also very tragic because because he's this helpless onlooker to their passion. Um, and 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 so he's 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 as it were dedicating himself to to creating a relationship which in some ways causes him the most enormous pain because it simply reminds him of what he can't have which is a which is a very very interesting departure in character terms for a wilbur smith hero which is what tighter is he's the hero of not this but a series of books that you begin with someone who is unmanned when the whole point about a Wilbur Smith hero conventionally yeah. is how extraordinarily manly they usually are. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And um, I think you can't really understand this novel or talk about this novel without really talking about Taita because it, it's it's all him. Um, and I think What's, what's fascinating to me is you compare Taita with Wilbur's other great hero, Sean Courtney, who we talked about when we were doing When the Lion Feeds, who is virile and manly and a man of action. Um, and of course, we compared him with, with Sean's brother, Garrick, who famously is a bit more effete um, and famously on his wedding night can't get it up. Uh, and then with Taita, you, so within that, in that context, very much to, you know, virile old-fashioned uh, manliness is 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 very much celebrated and i think it's a testament to wilbur's range as an author that he can then completely flip up that on his head and create literally an unmanned character and give him so much who is also uh, a slave so as, as i think you said he he's impotent on in every possible way he's he's legally impotent because he has no standing in society and he's he's physically impotent um and yet he has so much power and that's kind of the genius of wilder i think to take this character who ought to be the very very bottom of the heap uh and give him so much agency well the, yeah and of course it's also and i don't think there are other wilbur smith books that are the same it's it's told in the first person yeah yeah i think that's really important yeah, so so the, the voice is Taita's voice, and it's fascinating that that was the voice of all the characters he had that Wilbur wanted to inhabit to the degree that he would, as it were, that the entire book would be seen. And there's a in massive, great, big, epic saga of a book, and the whole thing, and indeed all the Taita books which Wilbur himself wrote, are are seen from Taita's point of view. And the paradox of Taita, as you say, is that he does have agency. And in a funny sort of way, the fact that he's a eunuch and the fact that he's a slave is what gives him agency because those two things, because he's because he's he has been, frankly, he's sort of he's been 
kind of Lord Intef's sex toy yeah. for, in his earlier days. Taito is also one of the things he's very proud of is how incredibly beautiful he is. He's kind of a wonderfully flawed character, but his, his flaws are very funny. Mm. I mean, I think in many ways he's also the funniest of all of all Wilbur's characters. Yes, because because he is self-regarding, but you kind of love him for him. He's not like a Malvolio or somewhere where he makes himself ridiculous. He's not ridiculous at all, but he is. He has his flaws, but it's the fact that because he's a eunuch, he's 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 close to Princess Lostris and well, Lady Lostris, who later becomes Princess and Queen Lostris as the book evolves. We can talk about later. Um, but it's the fact that he's a eunuch that allows him to be with her and other women. And the fact that he's a slave in the same way as servants often get, you know, it's like valets get very close to the most powerful men or the maid servants get close to the most powerful women because he's a servant and he's a servant of very powerful people. And he's an advisor to them because he's so wise. He's actually much closer to the center of the action than any normal, free, intact man would be. And, and, and I, as I read the book, I was thinking about the Ottoman Empire, which, oddly enough, operated on quite similar principles that the sultans liked to have as their closest advisors, people who were both slaves and eunuchs, and they'd be viziers, and they'd be very incredibly rich. They could have massive palaces of their own. And again, might often have been the sultan's lover. But the, because they were eunuchs, they were not going to, be, as it were, go off fathering sons, which meant they couldn't create dynasties which could be a rival. And you could allow them to be close to the women because they wouldn't be, as it were, messing around with the sultan or the pharaoh's females. Mm-hmm. Um, so he does have tremendous power and agency in this paradoxical situation where, as you say, from the outside, he has nothing at all. Yeah. And there's a scene where he's done some great service for Lustrous. And so as his reward, she wants to free him and he refuses. He refuses to be freed. And certainly to modern sensibilities, you think, gosh, that's... um, brave right writing a scene where the slave refuses to be freed but actually Titus' logic is impeccable because if he is a freedman then suddenly he won't be able to be near her because of course she's a uh, now at the stage i think a royal woman she's she's the wife of the pharaoh and uh so a, a normal freedman would never be allowed within a million miles of her so he will lose his power if he actually gains his freedom and that's sort of the paradox of his existence yes i mean but in a funny sort of way you could say the same for jeeves <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah, and Betty Wister. Yeah, that 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 that's my kind of the point is that a servant who is close to power, it's like, for example, <clears throat> that the personal assistant of I mean, of, of you know a billionaire's immediate PA, yeah, or or a superstar's PA is an extraordinary. They're a gatekeeper. Yeah. they're extraordinarily powerful in that respect, and they know things that other people don't know, and they and they can and if they want to, as Taita does. They can control things. And, and you were talking about how there's this sort of, these things that were, were unintentionally. I, I mean, I don't think, by the way, it's entirely Taita who is responsible for the trouble that hits Tannis and Nostris. Oh, no, 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 completely not. It's, it's their, their, I mean, it's their passion that drives it. To a large extent, 
Tanis himself, who I think is is a kind of he's kind of an Egyptian Courtney yeah. in his in his, both his his motives. He's kind of he's good hearted. He loves hunting. He's kind of deeply conservative, not in a particularly moral way, but in, in the sense that when chariots turn up, yes, he's, he doesn't want anything to do with them and is terribly contemptuous of them. Yes, even though he has just been, his armies have just been destroyed by them. And even though Taita has figured out how to make a better chariot with better wheels and even found better horses. And known, known as the Taita chariot, I believe. Indeed, it's because everything is. <laughs> Everything's named after him. Exactly. And he's had the Taita bow and he's had, and he's, by this point, he's, he's also created a great water meter that can measure the, 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 the flow of the Nile and predict what the, the annual flood is going to be like. And he's written the textbooks on military maneuvering and stuff. Yeah. And all while being Lord Intef's slave, um, but it's it's the fact that tight that Sotanus, being this bluff, hearty figure, has no gift at all for the kind of subtle, manipulative court politics required in a pharaoh's court. <laughs> um, it's the very fact that Tanis is is this honest, bluff, straightforward man that means that he gives an honest but incredibly politically foolish speech to, to Pharaoh at, at, a, at, a, at a sort of big gala play in which he's performing, which all the crowd adore and, and Tanis is tremendously <laughs> pleased about. And even as he's speaking, Taita is sort of with each word thinking, oh no, oh no, just stop, just stop talking, just stop digging yourself into more and more and more trouble. So he's as much pulling his two young lovers out of the trouble that they cause themselves as he is creating it himself. But but certainly, as you say, that first act, as we might say, long extended first act, is about the setting up of that triangle of, of Taita and Lustris and Tanis. And then, yeah. then there's also the interesting character of the pharaoh. Yeah, Mamosi. Uh, uh, who, who, as it were, steps in between our two lovers. Yeah, and is actually shown as a sympathetic... He starts off and you think this is going to be a classic sort of Roman emperor, sort of, not probably not Caligula, but sort of Tiberius sort of figure who's decadent um, and old-fashioned and presiding over the disintegration of his empire without um, doing much about it as long as he... And the first thing we find out about him is that he's prepared this absolutely monumental funerary complex, uh, which has actually impoverished the kingdom because he's filled it with so much gold and treasure. And of course, the funerary complex has been designed by Taita. The incredible murals on the wall are painted by Taita. Uh, He's brought together the... uh, the finest craftsman in the world to kind of create furniture designed by Taita. And in fact, the one thing he hasn't designed is the funeral sledge, um, which is going to drag the, the sarcophagus into the, the final uh, tomb. And uh, and he's, he's Taita's hilarious. He's very sniffy about it because he thinks it's some kind of uh, unesthetic monstrosity. Uh, and he's worried that people, or because he designed everything else, people will think that this is his work. Um, and uh, he, he doesn't want to be associated with such an ugly piece of engineering. Just, just to sort of be pause here as you were saying earlier it's just astonishing i mean the 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 sled is shown being dragged by huge great herds of oxen on its journey it sort of goes Mm. from the riverbank of the nile 
up towards the funerary complex with 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 the sort of the king sitting on top on his throne covered in white makeup and with a false beard and all that stuff and crowns and what have you yeah and when as i'm reading it i'm thinking well a did they ever not notice that say round things roll like a log will roll or or and 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 did nobody tell them? I mean, were the Egyptians... I mean, they, well, they were. They didn't have the wheel, as a matter of fact, at this point. But it's just astonishing to imagine that at no point did any Egyptian go abroad because they were trading with people from all over the world and spot that in, in, in civilizations not that far away, there were these round things that enabled all sorts of vehicles to proceed much more efficiently it's it's just one of the kind of mysteries of of the ancient world i think that that, that, that they could and even before the book is set in i at the end of the book you it, it reads that it's set in, in 1780 bc but i think that's actually a bit earlier than when the hyksos actually arrived in egypt but in any event it's many hundreds of years after the great pyramids have been built so yeah. they've been able to Build these extraordinary things and create an incredibly sophisticated society with with bureaucracies and able to put huge armies into the field and you know wealth and nobody's thought of the wheel. Yeah, but actually, what I think is 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 clever is the way that Wilbur seeds that idea because you can't tell the reader here's something we haven't thought of, because obviously in Titus mind, he's never thought of it. So as you say, when you read about the funeral sledge, I, w- I read that and I thought, why do they have a sledge? Surely that's the worst possible way of transporting this massive granite or marble, or whatever is sarcophagus. Um, and then it's only when the Hyksos turn up and then you think, oh, okay, so they actually don't have the wheel. And suddenly, so it's a really clever way of Wilbur seeding that idea without... Um, without telling you something that, that Titer couldn't possibly have told you. One of the things that happens later in the book is that Titer invents the water wheel when he suddenly realises he's, he's, sort of, he's, he's placing a chariot wheel in water to see if the water hardens up in the wood and it goes round and round. And he's, oh, yeah. maybe you could put a little buckets on that. You know? <laughs> so add that to the list of Titer inventions. But anyway, we should yeah. break it back to the story because... So there's, there you, you're describing the, 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 the pharaoh... As you say, um, apparently this decadent character interested only in his own funeral. And yeah. then <laughs> another of the tighter things which go horribly wrong yeah. is that is that he he tight, the Pharaoh suddenly notices just how beautiful Princess Lostris is, or Lady Lostris as she is at this point. And just how badly he needs a male heir. Yeah, he's sort of a Henry VIII figure, isn't he? Where he's obsessed with with fathering a son and he's failed um, so far. And Titer, trying to get himself out of a hole because he's been asked to kind of... Um, he's, he's got a reputation because he's a magician as well as being everything else. Um, and, and, and a seer. Uh, and so the pharaohs asked him, how can I have a son? And Taita doesn't want to commit himself. So he comes up with this sort of impossible prophecy, which involves a lot of abstinence, eating bulls, testicles, I think. Yes. But also he says, you have to find the most beautiful woman in the kingdom. 
um, but only within like three months of when she's come to womanhood. Um, and he thinks it'll be impossible for Pharaoh to find and therefore he'll be off the hook for this prophecy ever coming true. And then, of course, he meets Lustrous uh, and Pharaoh immediately realizes that Titus, this is Titus' prophecy. So um, Titus is sort of sunk by his own um, his own attempts to wriggle out of his, his debt to Pharaoh. Although, of course, this, 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 this enables him then to get close to the Pharaoh yes. because, because he becomes the person who will, who will, in Pharaoh's eyes, enable the Pharaoh to have the son. And there's another example where because he's a slave, because he's a eunuch, because he's not a threat, apparently, he gets closer and closer and closer to the center of power and starts wielding tremendous influence over the Pharaoh. And meanwhile... As you say, Tanis has, well, Tanis has been sent off on an impossible task, which perhaps you should describe the, the sort of, not quite labor of Hercules, but it's a sort of, it's a bit like, it's a bit like, it's a bit like somebody sending, sending a, a suitor for their daughter off on an impossible task. Yeah, so Tanis has been, uh, as punishment for having given this rather impertinent speech to Pharaoh, pointing out all the things that are wrong with the kingdom, which you don't do. So he's been sent to root out the the brigands uh, and the bandits who are preying on Egypt and have made it almost un, ungovernable. The shrikes, shrikes, yes, na- named after a bird. And uh, yes, a little bird which is which is small but peculiarly vicious and impales its prey on thorns. It, it sort of goes around collecting insects and worms and stuff, and and to, and to sort of instead of a larder, it just it sort of it pops all its prey on on individual thorns so they can come back to it later. Yeah, so it feels like one of those horror movies, doesn't it, where you go down to the basement and you've got all yes. the victims kind of um, yes. in various stages of decomposition down there. Um, that's that's what a shrike thinks of as being standard operating behaviour. Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, so Tannis is sent to uh, eradicate this kind of bandit threat, uh, which he does with Titus' help. Uh, and again, this is again kind of, I just sort of uh, marvel at the craft of the writing because Titer seems implausibly competent at helping Tannis figure out how to get at the Shrikes. And you think, God, is that, is that likely? You're kind of stretching it here, Wilbur. And then, of course, there's a revelation later where we discover that actually Titer did have inside information. So there's a very clever game of kind of withholding information from the reader um, in order to uh, kind of create the kind of the dramatic effect. And I think this is another example. I do, I do think this book is Wilbur absolutely at the height of its powers. And um, I think the way it is written is so different to his other books and it just shows his range because you mentioned Titer being funny and this book is really funny um and both kind of Wil- Wilbur does it both ways so Titer himself um is funny in the way that he tells his story so he, ha- he has all these lines like uh you know someone says oh you're one of the three best physicians in Egypt uh and he goes oh well I I I, I that may, that might be true, but I can't for the life of me think who the other two would be. Um, so his vanity just is just hilarious as the reader. And that's the really clever balance. He's he's not a he's not a figure of ridicule because very again, say like a Malvolio character where you have the servant who's tremendously puffed up and thinks he's wonderful and, and believes that he can seduce the heroine. Um, but but Titus somehow your affection for him and your sympathy for him. I, and he is sympathetic because because he has suffered this terrible loss. He, you can't help but root for him, and so you laugh with him, not at him. If you know what I mean? 
Yes, and I think if he didn't have that, he would probably be insufferable because he's so clever and he can see the future and he can invent everything and he's a master of military tactics uh, and he can kind of manipulate any situation to the to the right outcome. And it's just that little self-regard that uh, it's almost like Poirot, isn't it? He, he's very sort of fastidious with his appearance. Yes, exactly. And, 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 you know, aware of his own intelligence and just every so often... Um, you know, it, it just gets punctured a little bit. And, and I think that just humanizes him a bit more. Poirot is exactly, that's exactly, exactly how it is. Yes. And again, with Poirot, yeah, it's, it's, it is the thing, it's, it, it's being insufferable that makes him not insufferable, if you know what I mean. It's that it's, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, because yeah. that is his weakness. But anyway, he and, he and Tannis go out into the desert and Taita enables Tannis to start achieving the apparently impossible task of rooting out the shrikes. And then Tannis himself achieves almost godlike status among the, among the Egyptian populace. Yeah, and he comes back and he's completely rehabilitated. And in a sense, this is the, the almost happy ending because, and this is where I think, again, Wilbur's yeah. so clever as a writer because um, you think you know where this book is going to go. You think it's going to be a love triangle. You've got Lord Intef the the evil um father who incidentally um he's the vizier i think he is styled as the grand vizier of egypt and i could not read about him without thinking of jafar from the disney movie of aladdin um who is with, yeah. and there are a lot of parallels you know he's got the beautiful daughter who falls in love with a guy she shouldn't um and they actually come out of it. I think Aladdin's 1992 and this book is 1993. So I, I do just have to wonder. I have no idea if Wilbur ever saw the movie. but um, Wilbur would have submitted it to his publishers before the film. Yeah, before then. Yeah, but it's, it's a funny funny coincidence. But 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 like like the Aladdin setup, you think that the lovers will come together, the vizier will be defeated, uh, the, father who sta- the father figure who stands in the way, in this case it's the pharaoh, um, will be got out of the way either he'll be deposed or he'll die or or something will happen um and and the lovers will be together and that's all about to happen about midway through the book um and you know that's already 400 odd pages so if that was the book you'd think oh i got my money's worth from that that was a ripping yarn i'm completely um satisfied with that book and this being wilbur that's really only the that's only the beginning that's all. That's all the setup. And 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 it, the the complication also there is that that Tanners is basically becomes such a hero to the population that he could very easily overturn Pharaoh. Yeah. But because of his tremendous decency and honestness, honesty, refuses to take do take that option, and he pays for it in a way. He pays for that. That decency and loyalty to the throne with his own. And this is another really, that Tannis who appears to have all the machismo that um, has been robbed from Taita actually has a comparable loss because he and Lostris finally in a sandstorm, they get trapped in a, sand, in a cave during a sort of three day sandstorm. So it's all very English patient, isn't it? Yes, except that, except that she doesn't get stuck in the, in the cave. Um, yeah. Um, she gets out of the cave. I think I can reveal that spoiler. Um, yeah. And while in the cave, they 
they take advantage of the privacy and the fact that nobody's watching them. Tait has to listen to them as they set about one another with great yeah. passion. And, and Tanis gets Lustris pregnant. And the only way that Taita can save both of them is by persuading the king, the pharaoh, that in fact is his child. And so, and this succeeds, but that means that just as Taita then has to look, looks at Lostris and is unable to express his love for her in physical terms. So for the second half of the book, Tanis has a son which he can never acknowledge as his own because, because to do so would condemn him and Lostris and the boy to certain death because it would be treachery. So, so he too has this pain of a love that can't be full, properly fulfilled. Yes. And, and it's that kind of interweaving of So you're going back to your, your bad expectations. As you say, in that alone, in the, the love triangle, the initial love triangle of Tanis, Lostris, and Taita, then you, end, then you have the fourth person, the pharaoh, then you have the baby who is actually Tanis's baby, but has to be, as were, attributed to the pharaoh. As you say, that, for most people, would be more than enough. Yeah. Set against the backdrop of Egypt, you've already by this point had tremendous series of very dramatic events, and as you say, it's a bit like years ago when Twenty Four came out. Remember that series Twenty Four, which was yeah, yeah, with Jack Bauer. Yes, yeah. and it was like one episode per hour of the day, and I was starting to write thrillers at that point, and I, I noticed this very clever trick that Twenty Four would do which is you would think that Jack Bauer had solved the problem, had found the bad guy. Yeah. Somewhere between hour eight and hour 12. And then you would discover that, no, there's a conspiracy behind the conspiracy. Yeah. And that's kind of what Wilbur, writing before, I think, 24, as well as before Aladdin, <laughs> that's what he does. You, as you say, you think you've got enough of a book. But then here's this great big sandstorm, apparently, another sandstorm yeah. coming out of the desert. And this time in it are people with horses and chariots. Yeah. And then the whole book is suddenly wrenched off its axis. Yeah. And frankly, another entire historical epic begins, which is in itself worthy of a book of its own. Uh, at, at least a book, yeah. And I think it's one of these things where an author like Bernard Cornwall, who I admire a lot as a writer, but he would have got 10 books out of just the first act um, because there's so much incident and so many Absolutely. you know, battles and campaigns and, and all the rest of it. Um, you know, you could, and with Wilbur, it's just this kind of charging ahead. And uh, this, I mean, this is why it's epic, right? This is because it's that scope. So yeah, so the, so the Hyksos arrive. Uh, and again, there's the sort of dramatic irony where all the Egyptian generals are like, oh, it's fine, barbarians will have no trouble dealing with them. And it's just built up and built up. And you know, as the reader, uh, that it's probably going to go horribly wrong, even though, unless you know the, the history of the period, you don't necessarily know how or why, but there's that, well, but does that sort of sense of hubris brilliantly well. Uh, and indeed, they get confronted with these chariots, with the horses for the first time. I love the way that after the battle, 
um, they capture some of the horses uh, or some of the horses got separated from the main um, Hyksos army. And so the Egyptians have captured them. And the Egyptians' first instinct is to slaughter them all because they think they're monsters that devour human flesh and they're terrified of them. I think that's such a wonderfully human reaction and of the sort that, you know, that Wilbur's so good at capturing. Yeah, so so the thing, the thing about horses is they have great big teeth and indeed they have hooves, hard hooves. So I suppose they might look monstrous or sea monsters if they've just destroyed your entire army. And and Taita then, he, he, he then has this encounter with a mare who's been separated from the herd. And and he sort of, well, he, he sees what you see if you're close to a horse, their beautiful eyes, the sort of the, the sort of ruffling sound as, the, as they breathe out through their lips, the, the feel of a horse's muzzle on, on your hand if you hold out something for them to eat. And he suddenly thinks, and he suddenly thinks, actually, they're not behaving like carnivores at all. They don't have what carnivores have. They don't have claws. They have they have the they have the square teeth, but they don't have cutting teeth, and they're just not behaving remotely like predatory animals. And and against Tannis's stiff resistance, he basically and and one of the one of the minor characters, a young character, has I think lived in the east and has <coughs> had some experience of horses. And so he's given the opportunity to try and sort of you know, put a herd together, uh, preferably out of sight, a long way away, don't get, in, don't get in the way sort of thing. And this enables him to create what will become, several hundred pages later, the sort of the, 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 the power that will, that will then enable the Egyptians to have their own chariots. But first we have the sight of all, all the, 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 the pharaoh dies in this, just after the first great battle. And the Egyptians are totally crushed. And, and, the, and the Hyksos are, are kind of following them as they retreat down the Nile. The Hyksos are following them on their horses on the banks. And the, and the kind of second half of the book takes you and this is historically accurate. The Egyptians were, the Egyptian court was forced to flee essentially out of Egypt, down south, into modern day, I suppose, Ethiopia. Well, so it's through, through Sudan, and because they get into Ethiopia in the end, yeah. And that is another, almost a different genre, the kind of epic yeah. exodus, yeah. biblical type of story. Yeah, and it's um, yeah, you're completely right. It's a different genre. It's very unexpected because, again, as soon as they start harnessing the horses and figuring out the the tighter chariot, you think, okay, well, this is the bit where they regroup, they build up the army, and then they go back and they kick the Hyksos out. And and you know, ultimately, in the long run, that is what's going to happen. But first of all, they run, they run away, and again, that's this very anti-dramatic anti-heroic kind of course of action that uh, that they undertake. And again, it's just another way that I think the story subverts the expectations of the reader in terms of genre, um, but also it's subverting this kind of masculine ideal uh, in that you don't stand and fight, you actually run away. And that's actually the smarter thing to do. So again, very, um, very, 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 very different kind of surprising the reader. Uh, and I think 
this is again why the first time I read it, I just read it and was wowed and thought this is an amazing story. Reading it again with, with more acquaintance with the world of Wilbur Smith, it's almost the structure of it is actually very similar to something like Monsoon, which he wrote a few years later, where the first half is all action and chasing pirates, and then they go over the frontier into the heart of Africa. They hunt, they make a fortune, uh, they explore, and it, and it's a very different kind of vibe. And this is, so in a sense, what Wilbur's giving us here is an absolutely classic kind of Wilbur story of action followed by a sort, a, a sort of sojourn into the wild. I mean, it's the same as Sean Courtney in uh, When the Lion Feeds, for that matter. The first yeah, yeah, yeah. bit is gold mining. And then he goes, then the last third of the book is very much across the frontier in, in the wilderness. Uh, so the structure is, is, is very kind of um, typical Wilbur, but he's flipped it. So the hero is not the, the Courtney type figure, as you said, you know, Tannis is this very Courtney-esque kind of figure. And then Memnon, the son, as a very Courtney-esque son who's coming of age, uh, starting to challenge his father. Yes. Um, so it's it's almost, but it's like a Wilbur Smith story being observed by the most un-Wilbur character you would expect in Taita. There's also another thing which, again, is one of those sort of second read and also reading as a writer rather than reading as a reader, perceptions, yeah. which is that the, the first two-thirds of the book happen in continuous time. I mean, it's all very close together. I mean, yeah. there's maybe a, there's a gap about a year at one point, but basically it, it's, it's quite tight-packed in time terms. The scenes when they go down to Africa actually spread over the best part of 20 years um, because, because what happens is um, Lostris, who's, who is, who's the widow of the pharaoh and the regent, takes this kind of like a female Moses, takes the people into the wilderness. And what she says is, we are not going to build any permanent habitation. We're not going to build any temples, anything at all. We are going to keep wandering until we are strong enough to return back to Egypt, which takes year after year. And by the time it's over, Lostris, you know, has gone from being the beautiful 14, 15-year-old girl you meet at the beginning of the book, to a woman in her 30s, which in Egyptian terms is, is quite old. Yes, there's a bit where Wilbur comes back. Oh, sorry, not Wilbur. There's a bit where Taita comes back from one of his uh, adventures uh, and Lostris has lost a tooth and she's got crow's feet. Um, and, and this is pretty shocking, actually, for the reader, yes. who's used to thinking yes. of her as this incredibly beautiful, nubile, yes. um, teenaged girl, young woman, Rooming with kind of sexuality and love. Yes, and 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 I think it's very touching too. And and that, but he because he, he still loves her anyway, and Tana still loves her anyway, and and the and the, and the character of, of Memnon, it, who you see from a little tiny baby, through to a young general. So Memnon is the son who is attributed to Pharaoh, but is actually Tanis' son. So he's actually Tanis and Nostris' son. So of course, Taita looks at him and he sort of becomes a surrogate father to Memnon. Calls him Mem and, and, and Memnon calls him Tata. And and you see this, so then the, the, in the thunder, you have a complete coming of age. So you see this child going from a little baby crawling around to a toddler 
to a sort of precocious seven or eight year old. He's driving a, he wants to drive a chariot by the time he's nine, nine years old and to being to a full grown man. And so then, so then there's this sort of epic and it's, it's weird because it, the pace of the book as you read it remains as relentless as ever, but actually you're, you're operating on a completely different time scale. Um, it's like some sort of logarithmic scale or something where everything sort of goes over a much greater stretch. And and so by the time they finally come back, and I, we probably ought not to say what happens at the very, very end, but, but, but there has been essentially a generational shift so that so that you know that that the, the, the characters who 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 have been the focus of all your attention for this great expanse of this book are kind of giving way, even when, again, this comes back to this whole kind of doing in one book what you might otherwise do in four, where there's this new character, this young man, who is going to, as we're, take on the narrative baton from his parents. And, and the other final thing, which is really getting ahead of ourselves, but the sequel to, to River God was not another book set in ancient Egypt. It was a book set in the present day, the seventh scroll, which is a kind of meta book in the sense that it's entirely about a modern day search for the secrets and the treasure left behind by the characters in the book about the ancient, you know, and, and to have to create a sequel which absolutely works as a sequel and is absolutely interwoven with River God, but to set it thousands of years later and make it work. I mean, that, talk about somebody being in their prime. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you know what it's like, Mira, you just yeah. think, oh, okay, I'm really on good form now. You know, they're going to love this. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's just such a stunt. It's just brilliant. I mean, I, you know, one just looks and thinks, wow. Yeah. You really were on your game. Yeah, I mean, it is an artist absolutely just um, doing something amazing and then subverting that and then subverting that. So, yeah, uh, River God is very much a subversion, I think, of of the kind of classic Courtney story, but, but by telling it through the eyes of Data. Uh, and then, as you say, then you, then you subvert it again. It's just, um, it's like Mozart, almost inventing and then reinventing, like with every, with every symphony. And the other thing which I think is really interesting this is a classic case of an artist doing something which they're, as it were, they're like their movie studio or their record label, in this case, their publishers, were saying, no, don't do it, don't do it. Because when Wilbur went to his publisher and said, okay, <clears throat> the next book is going to be set in ancient Egypt. And they're like, what? No, <laughs> there are no Courtney's in ancient Egypt. There are no Valentine's in ancient Egypt. What the hell are you doing? No, you don't set a book in ancient Egypt. And, and people were really worried. So I'm like, well, we've got to. He's Wilbur Smith. He's sold hundreds of, you know, 100 million books or whatever, 50 million books by this point. We can't say no to him. I suppose we better let him do it. It's going to be a disaster. But, you know, maybe the book after we'll go back and have a proper African book. Yeah, this, this is going to be like his sort of freeform jazz album before he went back to kind of the, the rock hits. Exactly. Yeah. Can you go, go back? Thank you very much. Now can we have the hits exactly like that? But as often happens with the thing that everybody says can't possibly work, it turns out to be this humongous hit. 
I mean, if not the absolute, it may very well be the best-selling book of he's ever done, he ever did. But if it is, wasn't, it was right up to the very, very top. And it's this huge hit, and it takes him off into a completely different thread, which runs parallel then with his other storytelling threads, into the present day. And I mean, and Taita is still, um, you know, almost now 30 years after he was created, is still, um, you know, arguably Wilbur's most popular of all his characters, is, is still the hero or present in Egyptian books and books set in, in the ancient world to this day. I mean, it's so he, it was a real foundation stone for an entirely new aspect of, of his work. And now, yeah, when you look back at Wilbur's oeuvre, um, his body of work, uh, you know, now that he's passed on, I think to me there are three real sort of pillars to to his work. One is the Courtney's, uh, one is the sort of contemporary thrillers, and one is Egypt. I mean, it's absolutely core to, to his legacy. And so the idea that the, the publishers tried to dissuade him from it, um, well, tells you a lot about publishers. Well, I, it, I mean, I think it tells you that that all people in the creative industries, if they have something that works, it's so hard to get something that works, right? It's, mm. You know, it's like, I mean, when I was, when I was very little, I, I got um, the, uh, the original Chitty, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang book written by Ian Fleming, yeah. which bore no resemblance to the film at all, as I discovered to my horror when I saw the film. Um, but I can imagine Fleming's publisher saying, like, what are you doing wasting time doing a chitty, 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 what? No, no, 007. That's what we No chitty, chitty, lots of 007, please. So enough of that already. But as it happens, chitty, chitty, bang, bang, went on to be a massive hit in its own right. But I mean, Alex, but you can see why. If you've got something that works, it's so hard to get that, then for goodness sake, keep doing the thing that works. Yeah. Except that sometimes when you don't do the thing that works and you do something different, it works even better, and and um, and and I think Taita and River God absolutely did. Yeah, no, it's a phenomenal accomplishment. Uh, I met a guy at a party once actually who rereads River God every year because um, he, he finds it that <laughs> you know he, he's that much in love with it. Um, and yeah, I think probably that's a good point on which to end it um, on this incredible achievement that is River God. But we will be talking more about the world of River God uh, and the historical background to it next time uh, in the first of two very special episodes in the company of renowned Egyptologist, I've always wanted to say those words, Professor Joanne Fletcher. So join us then for talk about the Hyksos. Who are they? Where did they come from? And what on earth were they doing in Egypt? Uh, and how on earth had they managed to keep the wheel to themselves? Absolutely. And the horse. Where are they hidden, the horse and the wheel? So it's anyway, it's goodbye from me, Diana Thomas. And goodbye from me, Tom Harper. Smith's show is produced by Christopher Wynn. Music by Dewey DeLay.